This episode of the Filmmaker Mixer podcast is sponsored by Reed's Cleaners in Austin, Texas. We launder everything but money. This episode is also sponsored by Piers Henry Headshots, shining the spotlight on you. Welcome to the Filmmaker Mixer podcast. My name is Andrew, and I'm joined alongside my co-host, Jeff, as always. Today, we have on Andy Cockrum. He shares a lot of great stories that took him around the world. Andy shares a lot of great stories about his documentaries, Team Everest, Sherpa Stew, and his upcoming documentary about Oliver the Chimpanzee, which is a really, really touching story. So uh, I think this is going to be fun. Hello, everybody. This is the Filmmaker Mixer podcast, and today we are mixing it up with one of my favorite people. He is a director, an editor, a documentary filmmaker. We are talking to Andy Cockrum from Danger Dog Films. So welcome to the podcast, Andy. Hey, thanks for having me. No, it's great. It's great. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, You know, Andy, one of the things I love most about you is that every time you stop by my office, you bring your dogs. (laughs) You go everywhere with your dogs. And I think that's awesome. You're a huge animal lover. And you even did a documentary on Oliver the Chimpanzee, also called the Humanzee. And we will talk about that later because it's a really interesting story. But first, let's start with uh, how you got interested in filmmaking. Did you start as a kid? Did you do it as a did you do it as a teenager? How did you get interested in film? Um, I think what I remember is my dad bringing home a little plastic Super 8 camera and uh, we'd play around with that. And then he, it was kind of his camera, but then I kind of uh borrowed it permanently <laughs> uh started just shooting you know what you shoot monster movies space movies cowboys and you know whatever gangster movies and and then just uh i um you know would go to theaters and see different movies and they used to have these uh little vin- what do you call it? little short videos before the films like uh, making of movies like they would show you like behind the scenes stuff. Right, right. And I remember one on stuntmen and that's secrets of that. some of the things they would do, how they do stunts. And so that just really excited me. And so ever since then, I wanted to make movies. Did you secretly want to be a stuntman? Yeah, I did consider that for a short while. I was a gymnast in high school. Oh, used no to, kidding. Yeah. I used to dive off my roof and did all kinds of crazy stuff. And and now I can't, I can't even imagine, you know, doing anything like that it seems so dangerous to me now but yeah i i i was actually i did end up doing a stunt uh i was a stuntman in the one of the texas chainsaw films for one a couple scenes i i doubled for leatherface so no uh, kidding i did finally get to you know experience had that experience of being a stuntman but um well, what was that like that had to be interesting <laughs> It was uh, it was the one uh, return. It was Return of the Chainsaw Massacre with uh, Matthew McConaughey and uh, Renee Zellweger and Robbie Jacks. He was playing Leather Leatherface, and um, for one of the ending scenes, they needed to tie Robbie to the back of a like a, a, tow, a tow truck, and there's a big RV driving alongside him, and he's supposed to swing at the tow truck with a with a chainsaw, and so he didn't want to do that. And all the, <laughs> I, I was just at the time. At the time, I was working on the set with him. With uh, you remember Josh Logan? Jo- yeah, I was going to say uh, Josh Logan. I remember him. Yeah, yeah. He was doing the uh, makeup effects for that film. And anyway, I was his fog guy. I was the guy that was making all the fog. So I was just sitting around, and they're like, "Hey, Andy, you want to get on? We tie you to this truck." And uh, <laughs> hey, basically, that I remember him only talking to me with a uh, like a um, basically a 
a belt around my waist <laughs> and I just had to lean over the side of this tow truck while we're shooting down this dirt road. And then they're like, okay, you're going to get on here. You're going to swing at it. Like you're trying to cut the RV. And then when we get to the end, your tow truck's going to veer off left and the RV's going to flip over. <laughs> and, oh my gosh. And there's no rehearsal and there's no, <laughs> no practice. I had, I didn't even get to drive a few feet to feel what that would feel like. So immediately I felt like I was going to fall off. And it was, I don't know, we went down, I don't know how many, how far, a few, like 500 feet or so. And we went off the road and the RV, I saw it tumbling over and rolling up big, you know, thing of smoke. I didn't fall off. I didn't die. But, um, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it was fun though. It's like normally, like normal, normally in a big budget sound, they would not do that. They would not risk that but this was sort of a lower budget film and uh at the time i guess you know i don't i can't remember if they even had a stunt coordinator they probably did um but <laughs> so anyway. so how did you segue from stunts into documentaries that's that's a, a strange tangent uh well that was years later so that was like what was it 1993 or something when we did that film, I think. I could be off on that date. And then years later, I used to work for uh, Robert Rodriguez on Troublemaker on a bunch of his films. I was working on one of those films, and a friend of mine asked me if I wanted to go to Mount Everest and shoot a documentary about him being the first person with one arm to summit Mount Everest. And I don't know if you remember that. There's a Gary Guller uh, is a one-arm amputee. Right, right. And I went with him and 15 people with varying disabilities. And I, I never, never really shot a documentary. I'd shot little short films and I, I had shot, you know, other stuff, but I'd never shot a documentary before. I'm like, okay, sounds good to me. <laughs> and so, uh, in between breaks, between shooting like Spy Kids 2 and Sin City, it, it, the event happened perfectly within that few months that we were in between. It sounds like you made that, that you answered that question much like you did the stuntman question. You want to do it? Sure. Why not? Yeah. It seems to happen a lot. And it was a lot. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're right. Yeah. It was crazy. I put, I didn't have a, even though the camera at the time. So I, I put $20,000 on my credit card of bought two cameras and flew a friend of mine out there to help me shoot. And, uh, <laughs> just taking a risk, you know, I, I, it's just the story sounds so wonderful and like a great experience. I never thought about going to Mount Everest before. But it was just like, just the idea of it was like, oh, I got to do this. I can't turn this down. Is there anything you did to prepare yourself mentally or physically? Um, I know you said you bought gear. Did you have to also, besides taking care of yourself, prepare your camera gear in a certain way that, um, to, you know, for to brace it for the elements? Yeah, we both, me and my friend Reed Nixon, uh, he's the other camera guy that went with me. Uh, we both started training and we were just going to like uh, one of the local fitness places. And uh, would put on gear sometimes and get on one of those stair, stair steppers, but really, I mean, we did, we both did that a lot. But really, it doesn't. I mean, I'm sure it helped a little bit, but the, what gets you is the altitude. Right. Um, I lost. It was a 21 day trek, and we went from 9,000 feet up to almost 18,000 feet. Uh, we, we went to base camp, and in that. In that 21 days, I lost 30 pounds. So. 
Oh my God. Was there a, was there a moment when you just said, what the hell am I do, doing right now? You know? Um, I'm going to be honest with you. A lot of times, uh, both, uh, both of us, but I think especially me, I was miserable. It was tough. It was a tough trek. And I'll see being the camera guy, I would film the group go ahead of me. Of course you want that shot where they're going around the corner of some mountain and then they're far away from me. I had to run up to them, catch up to them, rest for a second, then run ahead of them. Sometimes climb a little mountain or whatever off to the side of them so I can get that beautiful over the, you know, that bird's eye view shot. They go by me again, then I had to run down and then go catch up with them. But what I do remember is almost every time I got one of those beautiful shots, I'd have the music in my head of what that, what music would go behind this. And I remember just one time just tearing up like, wow, I'm here, I'm here doing this. Like wow. I'm getting to have this experience. I never, you know, I never even dreamed about this experience. And now Nepal is one of my favorite, top favorite places in the world. I've been back four times now, I think, but um, I just love Nepal. I love the people there. I love the mountains and, and it, it, it is rough though. Like at nighttime, right around three o'clock. So you start the morning and you're wearing shorts, whatever it is, cause it's kind of hot. And then, is that right? so the, so, it, cause I always picture it being cold. So you're yeah, saying, well, yeah, well, uh, this is lower, but you know, as you're going up, as you get higher towards closer to the base camp, yeah, you're, it's more cold most of the day, but right, yeah, right. you're like in shorts and maybe a, even a t-shirt. But then as the day, right around two or three, it starts to kind of get colder and colder. And then you're, you got to get all your clothes on. Then you're sleeping in the tent. We didn't have like hotels and me and Reed would crawl in our little tent and they carried a generator. Uh, on the back of a yak for us, like a gas generator. And we would charge our batteries every night. Often they didn't charge fully. When we finally made it to base camp, the generator had died, I think because the altitude was too high and it couldn't get, get enough air. We had like two batteries between us to get the final, we arrived shot at base camp. <laughs> oh, wow. <clears throat> and so, and also we were going to be at base camp for two or three days. I think maybe it was more than a couple of batteries, but... We had no more battery power. And so I was like, all right, we've got to conserve this. You know, making a film is so much, it's just difficult in general, let alone trying to make one while you're climbing up Mount Everest. You know, besides trying to get good shots, you need to take care of yourself as a human. I'm curious, you know, from that experience moving forward, when you're on less harsh sets, you know, dealing with elements, there has to be something you take away from your experience on Mount Everest that, you brought with you moving forward to your future sets? That was really a, like I was learning how to make documentary films. I'd never even, I'd, I went to UT for a few years, but I never studied documentary films. So I was sort of learning it as we go, but I'd, I'd seen documentaries. I think but uh, the one thing I learned is just, I would sometimes on purpose leave the camera rolling and sometimes accidentally leave it rolling when I was shooting on that trip. And often it's, because we do little interviews along the way and often it's, after the interview, when you get some of your best stuff, because all of a sudden they're the person you're filming is more relaxed. They let their guard down a little bit. Yeah, let their guard down, and they'll say, you know, they'll remember something. Like I, sometimes I'll be packing up, but I'll leave the camera running, and then they start talking. Well, you know, I thought I thought about bringing this up, and I'm like, oh, I'm leaving. 
leave the camera on. So it almost it almost sounds like you were learning how to get the best out of your subjects by giving them a moment where they can let their guard down and they can be more relaxed and they don't feel like they're, you know, in front of a camera per se, but they're just having a conversation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of things I learned. It's, it's strange to go on someone's vacation and just stick a camera in their face the whole time. There's a guilt behind that. Like, yeah. Like with the Sherpa people too, like here I am just filming you like, I'm shooting like it can't be like a normal human have normal conversations like I right. camera up in their face and it's just odd but I'm like well I'm there this is the only time I'm gonna have the chance to get this I'm not gonna come back and this and also I kept telling myself this is my job this is what I'm here to do so um, so so I'm always curious about the nuts and bolts of like the day-to-day routine so I'm curious if you could walk us through a day from the moment you got up in the morning, what did you do to get your coverage and, you know, get, get back to bed at night? What was up? What was a day like? Well, the uh, Sherpas will wake you up. Well, they'd have some Sherpa tea. And anyway, we get out right away. You see people doing things. And so there wasn't really much for it. In my case, I got to grab that camera out of my bag. I can't even really wake up. I got to grab it. And so I grab it and tell them whatever I thought was interesting, whether it's, them getting their their sherpa tea in the morning basically the kits already we both had each had a kit with a sony camera and um batteries and uh we each also had a sherpa that would come with us to help us with the extra equipment you know a tripod or whatever so me and my my sherpa buddy would um start the like as soon as the the team would take off we'd start after them, just start filming them. And every day we'd follow different people so we could find out more about them as we went up the trail. And we would shoot up until about two or three. And they usually tried to make, get us to arrive at uh, the next camp by two or three, because that's when it starts to really get, start to get cold. And that's when we would crawl in the tent. We would be, it was maybe take a little break, but usually we would try to start charging the batteries right away. Uh, taking the middle mini DVs out and labeling them and putting them somewhere safe. And we're carrying those all the way up too. And uh, basically, and then if there's a possibility of shooting some, sometimes at night they would have like little tit parties and uh, we got there and the Sherpas would all sing and that maybe people have a few drinks here and there, you know? So <laughs> Once again, I, I, I personally felt like, well, I'm, I'm the filmmaker. I got to film this. And so it was constant, it was constant. Like, okay, I can't, I can, they say, sit down and you sit down and eat. And I was like, you know, I sit down and eat a little bit, but then I'm like, oh, I gotta be filming this. I'm, I'm, I'm the one that's responsible for this. So I'd film it and then uh, we go to sleep and it would be really cold all night. And then we'd wake up in the morning and start the day over again. We just kept doing that all the way up to the top. And, and how many days were you there shooting? It was 21 days on the trek. Wow. Which is actually, you can actually get there, like a normal tour might be eight days from um, what's called uh, Lukla. You fly into Lukla. Um, or if you're my friend named Dallas Sherba, you can walk all the way from Lukla to base camp in like six hours or something ridiculous. 
he's like a Superman. And, um, and he's running around in sandals, you know, like hope in sandals. But, um, for us, it was 21 days. Cause you're, you're, there's, uh, there was two people with quadriplegia, two or three people in wheelchairs and some amputees, various, you know, uh, leg amputees and spina bifida and wow. a few other things. But, um, so it's a little bit more of a, you know, we, we had to get over to large boulders and there was a, a lot of help by the Sherpas when they couldn't do it themselves, uh, like the, wheel, the guys in the wheelchairs, they, they put them down and if they could do a long stretch for that day, they would wheelchair up the, up the mountain. 21 days there. The whole trip was about 30 days because we spent some time in Chapman Duke. And, and this would have been the largest group of people with disabilities to ever reach, uh, a Mount Everest base camp, correct? Yeah, they were the largest, and I think we're still the largest group. And then after that, Gary was the first person with one arm to summit Mount Everest. And he's a motivational speaker. Now, he's actually, you know, he's spoken all over the world about the event. And you can find him at GaryGoller.com. So. That, that's really awesome. And and obviously, it was a great experience because you did a follow-up documentary called Sherpa Stew about uh, the lives of two mountaineers from Nepal who leave the Himalayas to go to New York and look for, you know, a new life and, and new successes. Um, tell us about that project. Well, yeah, when I, when I shot the team Everest, I, I was amazed by all the Sherpa people uh, that were there and helping us. And one of them was that Nimadawa Sherpa guy I told you about. And I, I thought, well, I'm going to make a movie about them someday, but I'm not a climber. I'm barely even a hiker. I couldn't see go, going back. I didn't know what it done, but anyway, I heard one day, uh, that Nima Dallo was working as a sushi chef in New York City. And I was like, Nima Dallo, so this, Nima's backstory, he summited, he saw, he ended up summiting with Gary on this trip. So he summited two times, I think. He, he's a two-time ever summit here. And he was living in New York City as sushi chef. And um, turns out he was living with other summiteers, uh, with uh, Kipa Sherpa, who's a three-time summiteer. And then it turns out there's like, now there's, I think now there's like 4,000 Sherpas living in New York City. And, and um, real quickly, for the people who don't don't know or may not know, can you describe what a Sherpa is exactly? Yeah, I, uh, a Sherpa, the Sherpa people came over from Tibet, um, and they settled in the mountains of uh, Nepal. And they are they speak a language that's very similar uh, to Nepalese, but it's not it's not exactly Nep- Nepalese. People used to think that Sherpas were, or a lot of people think that Sherpas are the guys that carry, that was the name of their job or something, but it's actually the name of the people. They are usually the people that do help mountain climbers, you know, from other countries, uh, summit Everest or hike around Nepal. Cause they, I'm guessing, I don't know all the scientific background to this, but I'm guessing since they lived in the Himalaya all their life that they're acclimated to being able to withstand like high altitudes. Right. So we live in a day and age with streaming services that there's more content than ever, uh, whether it be documentaries or movies. And I'm curious if there's any current trends, filmmakers or movies you've seen that are inspiring you, or if not, what inspired you earlier on in your career to just develop your own style. Years ago, I picked my top three films 
or uh, film directors, and then I just haven't changed it since then. <laughs> like there's a lot, there's so many great directors now, but I just kind of chose three people that I like their work that inspired me, and that was, of course, Steven Spielberg. My favorite films he's made is Empire of the Sun, which people don't really talk about that much, but I freaking love that movie. So for some reason, I really connect with that movie, and I don't try to analyze why I connect to it, but I've always just loved Empire of the Sun. And I'm a big fan of his. And then I love Spike Lee. I've ever seen Do the Right Thing. And I was just like, that also just really connected with me. And then I'm, uh, I like Miyazaki, uh, with, uh, Spirited Away. So, um, I, I, I don't often like to sit around and analyze why, I, what it is I like about each of these d directors are kind of, they're all different, but there is something about those films that really connected to me. Uh, I know you, you know I I know you're also an editor. You've edited features as well as documentaries. I'm curious how you approach editing a documentary versus a feature if it's drastically different, if it's maybe surprisingly similar. It's definitely different because with a with a feature you're looking at the script and then you're finding all the takes and you're picking the best takes and the best moments and all that stuff. But with a documentary, I probably do it totally the crazy way. Um, I throw all of the footage into a timeline, I watch it all the way through, and then I edit that timeline down to a shorter timeline, like I get rid of all the stuff that I know I won't use, and then I do another ed edit, I go through the whole timeline, and I pick the stuff that's resonating with me or like um, uh, that I, th I think there's a good chance I'll use, and I just keep doing that, and unfortunately it takes a long time, but since I'm not, I'm just doing this for myself, it doesn't, you know, I don't have a, a company over me or uh investor or a producer or somebody who's cracking the whip telling me I need to get this done. I could sit there because I kind of like to, I like to live within the footage and kind of it sort of, I don't know how to explain it, but sort of, I feel like I almost become not one with it, but I feel like at some point I'm like, okay, I'm feeling this. Oh, this is going to be a great scene. And so, uh, yeah, the, my process for editing documentaries is a uh, lot longer. I would probably not recommend hiring me to uh, edit your documentary because it'll take. It <laughs> <laughs> will end up good because I, I think I am a, I, I, a good at a good storyteller, but I'm just not. Uh, yeah, I just take a bit, way longer than you probably would want. So, <laughs> and and does the story. As you're editing, I know the story kind of bubbles to the surface with a documentary. Do you find the story becoming uh, vastly different than you anticipated once you start to go through the footage? Well, the uh, the three films were all very different in the way they were shot and edited. The, the, so Team Everest, it was all kind of in order. You know, we're going from one place to another. Right. And so I was able to edit footage in order. Um Sherpa Stew, I was, I was, all I knew is I liked the idea of all these Sherpas living in New York City. I thought that was interesting. But then I'm like, okay, what is the story? <laughs> you know, but beyond that, so I had to, I went I, and uh, just kept going back to New York and living with them. And um, so you and, liked the idea, but the story developed as you were working on it. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. And actually, uh, one thing I'll say about taking forever to, uh, ed edit these films and to finish them actually ends up working in my advantage because things bubble up 
later on or events happen later on it's like oh man i'm so glad i hadn't finished the film like with sherpa stew there's a big sherpa wedding that i i ended up having about uh, that i ended up going to in nepal about six years into my editing process and i was able to use that in the film with this all over documentary which has taken me several years there's about a month ago i went to japan to uh, interview some people and that i if i had finished the film a couple years ago I would not have these interviews and I got these incredible interviews and also a whole bunch of new photos of Oliver that no one's ever seen before. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah, there's, it, it, it comes in various ways as far as telling the story. Sometimes I'm shooting, okay, this is going to be in the film. Like this is a sequence that's going to be in the film or later on just watching. I'm like, Oh, I know how to fit this together. Well, um, you know, speaking of Oliver, I know you've done a lot for animal causes. You founded project Oliver you founded uh, the Apeland Foundation. I'm presuming that's because of the documentary work you did on Oliver, uh, which we want to talk about. Before we do that, are there any foundations that you're putting a lot of support in right now that you'd like to, you know, make people aware of that maybe they could check out and see if they could support them? Yeah, I mean, my main I, for the last 20 years is that it's going to be my 20th anniversary in May. I've been helping out this sanctuary called PrimarilyPrimates.org, and um, it's a monkey and chimpanzee and other animal sanctuary near san antonio texas they rescue do like old you know uh lab monkeys and chimps and entertainment industry like some of the chimps were trained uh by the air force to to for uh space travel they never actually went into space travel but they've got all these chimps and anyway i i i ran across that place 20 years ago and 20 years later I'm still helping them out and producing, you know, video content for them. And that's where I met Oliver, my current subject. And and what's the name of the foundation again? Primarily Primates. Primarily Primates, good. Primarilyprimates.org. Yeah, it's, they're on Facebook and Instagram too, but they, they do a lot of great work. I'm still involved with them. I actually, uh, before this, this uh, podcast, I was uh, drawing up plans for a, a new chimpanzee habitat that we're hoping to build uh oh, wow. this year so that's great um, yeah i think that's like a perfect segue into your documentary on oliver for those listening who maybe don't know the story what what can you tell us about it well uh oliver was a chimp that i met 20 years ago at the primary primates animal sanctuary Oliver is different. He looks, he he just looked different. He looked, looked kind of strange. He's got weird ears and he's bald and he just didn't look like a normal chimp. So other chimps don't like him. Um, he would walk upright and he, you know, he does the other things like smoke, smoke cigars and drink, you know, high balls. Of course that, that could be trained into a chimp. But back in this 1976, uh, this, uh, lawyer discovered him through these, a couple people that from the circus uh, and the lawyer was convinced that maybe Oliver was something special. Maybe he was a missing link. Maybe he was some sort of strange chimp, um, you know, this aber you know, aberration. And this is because of the way he, he looked and the way he walked upright and those kinds of things. Yeah. 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 He, uh, the, the, basically there was a, a circus team called, the burgers and Janet is now 97. I've interviewed her several times about Oliver that they had this chimp Oliver and, um, some guy from some scientific 
magazine interviewed them and wrote up wrote an article about Oliver saying that he thought there was something special about Oliver. Anyway, the big claim was that Oliver was tested and he had one chromosome closer to being a human than a chimp. He became like all instantly people heard about him and he became like world famous. So I've got I've got papers from all over the world of you know this this chimp, you know, about this amazing chimp and um basically the Jap- somebody in Japan heard about him. They flew Oliver over to Japan and he was like 20 million people came to see him. Oh, wow. And uh, he was like this big phenom- phenomena in Japan. He came back from Japan. They, they, he ended up in a circus. He ended up somewhere else. And then he was in a lab for like seven years. Oh my he, gosh. He was, he wasn't actually tested, but he was in a lab. And then he ended up the, at the sanctuary where I met him. And I based over the last 20 years, I would go and visit him and we would try to build a new habitat for him like over the years. And then we, uh, I would shoot some shots of him. and there had already been a discovery documentary kind of a little bit about Oliver, uh, like uh, also shot about 20 years ago, Oliver passed away in 2012. And at the time he passed away, that lawyer that, uh, had found him years before, somehow found me and gave me the entire Oliver archive. From oh, wow. So getting all the photos, audio, newspapers. And then I visited the lady, Janet Berger, and she also gave me all of her archives of Oliver. Oh, wow. That's, that's and, amazing. Yeah, well, it kept, what's amazing, it just kept happening. So I would go through, I have like, thousands of documents and we would go through all these documents and I'd find more people like contact them like oh yeah I got photos oh yeah and so I basically started driving all over the country in my camper with my dogs and interviewing all these people and uh they would give me you know whatever they had on Oliver some of them didn't have anything anymore and and then I went to Japan to film to interview some people that knew Oliver when he was over there. And uh, anyway, I'm making the film because I think Oliver's story is interesting and it's a tribute film to Oliver, but also I'm using it as a, as a hopefully a way to talk about the chimpanzee experience, but also help primarily the primarily primates animal sanctuary, you know, through awareness and, you know, hopefully getting them some more fin- uh, additional funding. It's been a long process. Um, well, it's but, a it's a fascinating subject. I mean, his his story is really really interesting, and and I and tell me if I'm wrong. I, I have this memory. Maybe I'm remembering it wrong, but I think you told me when you were working on the documentary. Didn't you stay in the sanctuary? Didn't you live with the chimps for a while while you were shooting footage? Or am I wrong about that? Uh, you're sort of in the middle there. I did have a, <laughs> for a short while. I did have a camper. So I'm like, I'm basically part of the sanctuary family. So, you know, right. after all these years. And so they trust me. I had a camper at the sanctuary, which I would, but it was outside the gates. You know, I, I'm not, I wasn't allowed to just kind of stroll around in there right. um, at night, but, uh, it's pretty crazy. Cause you, you, it sounds like the chimps are just outside your door, <laughs> you know? Wow. And there was some nights with, uh, the, the trailer with a shake. You know, <laughs> but I figured, finally figured out it was just near nearby highway. But I didn't really stay out there much. Um, but I do also. A few years ago, the sanctuary sold me a house that's right next to the sanctuary, and I called the house the ape house. 
And I go out there and spend the night and just kind of whatever I'm working at the sanctuary, I'll go out there and I'll spend the night. And, um, yeah, so I'm sort of it. It's kind of like living out the safari, but you're, you're not going to get eaten alive, you know? Right. Right. <laughs> Is there a topic that you haven't covered in a documentary yet that you would really want to tackle? Uh, yeah, think about that. I think I'm going to do something fun that like really fun next, maybe a comedian story. Although uh, there's so many good, good ones already out there. I have a couple of large features ideas in my head, but they're not documentaries. And, uh, other than that, I just think I want to do, I don't want to spend another seven to 10 years on a documentary. Could you ever envision yourself doing like the, you know, the new streaming service version of a documentary, which is, you know, five to 10 episodes long, um, versions, or are you more drawn to the more succinct kind of feature length, uh, documentary versions? Well, it's funny you said that we're actually editing the Oliver film uh, in th three parts, like it's uh, like three hours, not, you know, like 50 minute or whatever episodes. Um, and then we're going to decide whether we need to condense it down to just a, a, a feature. But I, I've been shooting for so long and I have so many great interviews. I, I, it We figured out how to break it up into three acts. So yeah, I definitely would consider that. I mean, we've, I've pitched to, uh, people before about the idea of doing an animal sanctuary series because I have very involved in all the, like I know a lot of the people in the sanctuary community all over the U S and outside, some outside the U S. And so I, I would love to be able to, you know, just go to all these sanctuaries and tell their stories. Um, then that might be still a project. It's just, it's a very hard project to uh, coordinate. Yeah, so you're wrapping up the Oliver project. I'm curious, what is your end goal with it? What would you love to see happen with it? I think my ultimate goal with with Oliver is I want people to see it. Obviously, I want I want it to be a good tribute to Oliver. I'm trying to make a film that's not an exploitation film. It's going to have a little bit of, you know, what is Oliver in it, but it's mostly it's going to be. Who is Oliver? Like, what was Oliver like? I want people to go, man, I wish I would have met Oliver. I mean, Oliver seems cool. I love Oliver. I just want people to know, not just Oliver, but like chimpanzees in general. If you've ever just sat in front of a chimp and looked in their eyes and just they're, they're sitting there and they're thinking about you and they're just, they're interested in you and you can tell they're, they got a whole thought process going on there. And um, so, yeah, if Oliver be successful um ultimately if somehow oliver could generate money for the animal sanctuary primarily primates that would be like pretty much the academy award for me that would be i would be the most happy and proud that you know i've made this film for him and you know i don't know if he would let's say i don't know if he'd appreciate it or not but it's really just about he was such a beautiful uh being and i don't want his tragic life to uh i just want to have some find some good in his in his story and to wrap up the episode we do this thing where we have our producer jeff weber leave a question for the guest the twist is he doesn't know who the guest is so sometimes the question can be a little bit more random but uh i'd love to play uh the question for you now all right you wake up one morning and the industry you're in now doesn't exist. What do you see yourself pursuing or doing for a living? Uh, that's pretty easy. I, I, I have two passions. I've had two passions for the last many years. 
is uh, I want to help chimpanzees. I want to build bigger green spaces, uh, bigger, more enriching green spaces for them. And I wanted to make films. And if I could not longer make films, I would love to continue uh, the rest of my life just helping animals and, and primarily uh, chimpanzees, but uh, other animals. Also, I'd like to do a little bit of traveling, just get back out there in the world and just look around and I'm just uh, just be happy and try to enjoy life. Well, good. Well, we look forward to seeing uh, to seeing uh, the honor story when it comes out. I remember seeing footage you brought by the office. I think you were transferring some old tapes or something, and and I got to see some of that footage. And it's it's a fascinating subject. So I think I think it's going to do well. It's funny. I was um, I've known you for a long time. How long you think? Oh gosh, uh, I bet since mm, I would say the early nineties. Yeah, I can't even remember how we met. Um, I could remember uh, working on your movie though. That was, I forgot about that. That was a long, oh God, that was a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. I remember it being fun. I can't, I can't remember how we met the first place, but, um, I remember, uh, just, uh, being fun, but also it was, uh, you actually, you, you, that experience inspired me to make my first feature film, uh, on super eight, a troll's bridge. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. That was, that was actually a really good story. Well, you know, thanks. I think it was, it could have been, like, it was a good story. It's, like, still my favorite memories because you're doing it with friends. It's, it's, you don't, you know, it's just, it's, you're there, you're fun. It's fun. It's, there's low stress. And I don't know, I still look back, if I look back at my career, I'm still like, no, Trolls Bridge was one of the funnest things I ever did. But anyway, I wanted you to know you, you, you're the one that inspired me to shoot a feature film on Super 8 film so uh thank you well that, that's a very nice compliment <laughs> well andy this has been a really fun conversation we appreciate your time and you've done some fascinating things and shared some great stories from being a stuntman to climbing mount everest to doing your documentary on oliver and so uh, we wish you all the success in the world on the documentary films and all your future projects thank you yeah thanks for having me this is uh, really cool you're doing this i mean uh uh you already have a busy career in life and you're doing all these other things. You're and you're like, Hey, let's, let's do, let's do a podcast too. <laughs> you're a crazy person, but now it's, it, it's enjoyed talking to you, Jeff and great meeting you, Andrew. And you as well. uh, thank you for listening to the filmmaker mixer podcast, a podcast created and hosted by filmmakers, Jeff Stolen and Andrew Lamping and produced by Jeff Weber. Our theme song was created by the handsome Stephen D. Bennett. Make sure to follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on and stay tuned for future episodes.